Hello, welcome back to The Fray. You're about to listen to episode four of our current podcast series, all about the French mathematician Evariste Galois. We are in the midst of a retrospective of the history of algebra. And so episode four, we're going to dive in to a specific time in history where that particular type of math was important. So if you want to catch up with some of the earlier parts of algebraic history, feel free to catch up on episodes one, two, and three. For those of you who are caught up, or if you'd like just to jump right into something new, I welcome you as you join me as we enter the fray. I'm old enough to remember the good old days of cigarettes, when people were allowed to light up inside, not only in bars, but restaurants, theaters, offices, airplanes, hospitals, for crying out loud. In every television show and movie, there was a nonstop parade of butts. Then there was the advertising, print, radio, TV. Everywhere you looked, there was the Marlboro Man looking back. I was a child in the late 1970s and early 80s. By that time, they were warning labels on the side of a pack of smokes. I know this because my mom is a smoker, and I was often tasked with buying them for her at the corner store. I would read the packaging of her cigarettes. Her brand was Benson and Hedges. And the warning label that was affixed to the side that said smoking these could lead to cancer. No one I knew cared. My mother sure didn't. In some way, shape, or form, it had been known that smoking cigarettes was bad for you for a while. I mean, nicknames like coffin nail aren't assigned to healthy products. But Big Tobacco, the first of the industries to earn the label of big, a pejorative term that means they have an agenda that is all about them and they could give a rat's ass about anything else. You know, big tech nowadays, big pharma, big agriculture. It probably started with big government, which has been a bugaboo of Americans for a long time. In any event, we, as a society, knew that cigarettes were bad, and even though the train kept a roll on smoking-wise, we the people began to institute change based on the simple fact that cigarette smoke harms more than just the solitary smoker. It can harm those around them. Friends, acquaintances, complete strangers. Hospitals, thank goodness, started banning smoking indoors. Then airlines joined in. More and more businesses and governing bodies began to limit the areas you could smoke. In addition, state governments, both standard legislative bodies and states with referendum systems, meaning that the people directly voted on an issue, began to tax the shit out of tobacco, taking a product that cost the same as a chocolate bar or a large soda and turning it into a real financial commitment. I mean, no one said you couldn't smoke. They were just telling you where you could light up and they were going to make sure that you paid a heck of a lot more for the privilege of polluting the earth and potentially harming other people. Now, at least, that is the way most people recall those days over two decades ago. Now, I was living in Los Angeles at the time. I was at my favorite hangout, the Circle Bar in Santa Monica, and it was New Year's Eve, New Year's night as 1997 rolled into 1998. That was when the smoking ban finally was put in place for bars and taverns in the state of California. Now, 25 years later, 
there is nary a public space that one can find anywhere to light up a heater. Now, all of this was done without the help of Big Tobacco to make things safer. In fact, what earned Big Tobacco its big moniker was the consolidated effort put forth by the entire industry, normally companies that would be ruthless competitors, but faced with an existential crisis, they found room for solidarity and combined forces to fight for decades the demand from the public to clean up their act. At the very least, everyone wanted to hear the truth, but that was something that Big Tobacco could not abide. It is an interesting Google search to plug in Big Tobacco playbook of obfuscation. Um, (laughs) Only, I guess, someone like me would think of Googling those particular sets of words. But anyway, what comes back is a litany of stories and articles concerning how all the rest of the bigs that have followed, uh, big tech, big pharma, big ag, that kind of stuff, how they're all following the original OG big tobacco. Their efforts in fighting the agreed upon science was to beget our current situation of peddled falsehoods parading as facts. Now take a few moments and give it a Google. It's a worthwhile rabbit hole to jump into. Now, we know now that the tobacco companies knew that their product was harmful. They had even admitted that much by putting warning labels on the packaging. But for some reason, though there was plenty of evidence, both anecdotal and scientific, big tobacco balked when it came to the addictive properties of their little cancer sticks. When they were asked about the addictive nature of cigarettes, tobacco answered with a resounding no. Our product is not a drug and therefore not addictive. The CEOs of the seven largest tobacco companies all testified under oath before Congress that cigarettes are not addictive. They went as far as hiring scientists of their own, establishing laboratories of their own, dedicated to researching and clearing the name, basically, of their product. Now, when a new paper or study was published pointing out the inherent addictive qualities of cigarettes, Big Tobacco would produce a report that would refute the new findings. The reason the state governments like California began to ban smoking in public places is that there was nowhere else to turn to help curb this ongoing public health crisis. This is because large portions of this country were unable to see through the lies and obfuscation of big tobacco and were giving them the benefit of the doubt. I'm not sure they're really that addictive. I mean, they have scientists too, and they say just the opposite. Now, I recall conversations like that from that time frame in the late 90s when the government was stepping in and taking the decision away from individuals and corporations and banning smoking. A lot of them also involved conversations about freedom and individuality. In the end, though, the bans went into place and we were all the better for it, so the health statistics say. But for a time, it was not as simple as that. It seemed as if big tobacco was going to be able to wriggle out of most of the proposed bans since people, you know, we the people, the voters, didn't see the need to intervene in the issue. A majority of Americans were uncertain that cigarettes were an addictive drug. So back on February 4th, 1994, so a couple years before the ban went into place in bars and taverns, for me at that New Year's Eve, a former tobacco scientist named Jeffrey Wigand appeared on the television news show 60 Minutes. He told his story to the American people. He stated that not only did the tobacco companies know their product was addictive, they were constantly attempting to increase its addictive properties. And with that interview, less than a year later, California had passed the first of its smoking bans. Now, if this all sounds familiar, it it should. They made a movie about it called The Insider. 
and it stars Russell Crowe and Al Pacino. It's a film co-written and directed by Michael Mann and is one of his best movies. By the way, it has brilliant cinematography for one of my favorites, Dante Spinotti. Now, there's a part in the movie when the producer at 60 Minutes, played by Pacino, is trying to convince the tobacco scientist, played by Russell Crowe, to do the interview on 60 Minutes and tell the American people the truth. Like, that was all that was needed, right? Now, can you imagine now, 25 years later, that simply appearing on television and telling your side of the story, the truth, as it turns out, would actually make any difference? Ask yourself, who or what could be presented on 60 Minutes this weekend that would be able to sway public opinion in the same way as it did concerning smoking? Then I think that even though I love that movie and want to remember this kumbaya moment when we all joined hands and threw away our coffin nails, but in reality, it was probably not that at all. If there had been big tech back then to go along with big tobacco, would smoking have ever been banned? We live in interesting times. There are many terms that can describe the current situation most of us find ourselves in. For now, I will stick with interesting. This is because, for me at least, we are being exposed for the first time, you know, in in a large portion of us, to the real working mind, the real working human mind, and not the human mind as we think it is. We are not the minds that watch a television show and agree to do what is best for society. In the example of the big tobacco, the myth nowadays is that, as a society, we rose up together to stamp out this public health scourge. But did we? It seems that we have spent decades kicking tobacco in the nuts, as if it is the only public health crisis worth fighting. Meaning that it appears to me that this is a case where it is politically and financially beneficial to pick on tobacco. Now, our ability to conquer secondhand smoke has more to do with old-fashioned greed and ladder climbing than the public good. I ask again, what is more likely? That one man did an interview on television and presented the truth, which the 30 million viewers, who had been told by Big Tobacco the opposite truth, decided to throw that out and listen to this Wygan guy decide he was more believable and a la peanut butter sandwich, we rose up as a society to put an end to all the lies. Or maybe... Due to the limited nature of politics at the time, you know, the mid-1990s was before widespread use of information sharing technology that would allow for loud voices to be heard from small groups. So instead, the professional buzzards, hyenas, and sharks of the legal and political world spotted wounded prey, and like any predators, took advantage of the situation and leaned into tobacco because they could. And there was really no one around to stop them. To put it another way, how many legal and political careers were built on the foundation of taking down big tobacco? Now, what does your current experience tell you? Have we changed that much in 25 years that just a generation or so ago, truth could be broadcast on television and be accepted? That would never happen nowadays, right? Is that because we have changed or because as late as 25 years ago, the playbook of how to create false narratives, mislead, and lie one's way to a cultural stalemate was still being written? or that the delivery system for such bullshit was in its infancy and not able to produce the chaos that its present-day version has been able to accomplish? Or are we just as likely, as a consciousness, to choose falsehoods over facts, to rationalize our way to any conclusion, to hear them, integrate them, and spread them? There have been cognitive studies that show there is a basic, consistent need for all humans to spread negative information. Stuff that we used to call gossip, but nowadays we take as fact. 
it is a common trait amongst all humans, at least the ones that could be studied, to consistently pass along pessimistic warnings. The reason for this, the current hypothesis states, is due to the even more inherent nature that we humans need to feel that we provide value to our group or tribe or clan or family or political party. Passing along to your fellow cave person that you have heard that around the bend, there is a known to be a fierce monster that eats men whole is a low risk way to make yourself part of a team. I mean, it's a win-win. If there actually is a fucking huge monster waiting to have chunks of your tribe in its stool, then you've provided a valuable service. On the other hand, if there turns out to be no monster, no harm, no foul. In fact, if there was, say, a prey or predator around the bend, then even though there may not have been a monster, there was certainly something to be on high alert for. Thanks, cave person. Another way of looking at it is, think about it if you were trying to become part of a new tribe. That had to have happened. You had to have uh, lost your family or your tribe. There had to have been orphans in the cave world. So how best do you ingratiate yourself to your new tribe? Well, of course, by spreading information, whether it be true or not, that sets you up as valuable, giving them warnings, information about the other tribes that you know of. And very rarely are you going to give them information that is seen as positive. That's how it works. It's why we still do it to this day. I mean, that's what the media is. That's what news is. A delivery system for warnings, helping us feel part of a whole. It is a highly evolved sense of belonging and utility that drives us to chat about the weather, relate the grisly details of a car accident, pass along weak information as fact. We do it all the time. We just don't notice it because it's part of what makes us who we are. The next time you meet up with someone, probably over a Zoom call or some shit like that, but pay attention to the information being shared that is outside the stated goal of the conversation. I bet you find a ton of gossamy, pessimistic, warning-style subjects being lobbed back and forth at surprising speeds. It's pretty fascinating if you just pay attention to it. Maybe record your next Zoom call and just listen to the beginning and the end of it. When, for some reason, we feel most comfortable just bullshitting, basically. I mean, we will never truly understand all of the workings of the human mind, but we can learn quite a bit if we decide to view cognition in the same light as we view all other natural phenomena. We have a bad habit of leaving ourselves, our behavior, our minds, out of all the other natural processes of the universe. We place an extreme amount of confidence in and place our own thoughts above all other natural phenomenon. Now, recently, in the past 30, 40 years, cognitive science has been working to correct this error. When it comes to how our minds work, there is a mounting evidence that reason and its exalted placement as the one and only way to find truth is all a lie we love to tell ourselves. Sort of, like, sort of like the lie we tell ourselves that we all could watch an interview on 60 Minutes and see the same truth. For the most of human history, the human mind, in particular the faculty of reason, has been given as the perfect example of thought in action, which is all fine and good, save for the fact that it doesn't work. Now, we think it works. I mean, that's what the movie The Insider is all about. We see truth professed. We collectively reason that it is indeed true. We collectively agree on a common sense of truth. But that leaves out one key point. Why did it take a perfect stranger on TV to make us all see the addictive nature of cigarettes? Why was the collective faculty of reason 
unable to discern the veracity of the cigarette addiction argument. Somehow, with all the evidence to the contrary, there were millions and millions of Americans who felt that there just wasn't enough information for them to make an educated, reasonable decision on whether or not nicotine is indeed a drug and as such is a particularly addictive one to boot. Then someone who most of us had never heard of before appears on 60 Minutes, tells us that indeed, yes, nicotine is addictive and yes, it is a drug. Wham, bam, thank you, Wygant. And the collective minds of Americans were able to reasonably determine, now that the truth is finally out there, that indeed, cigarettes are not only bad, they are designed to be even worse. For me, that sounds a lot like shooting the arrow and then painting the target around it, and then yelling, bullseye! If we as a society were able to do that for cigarettes, then how do you explain our current predicament concerning the wearing of masks during a pandemic? I wonder if Michael Mann has considered another meaning for his film. Instead of a whistleblower or a persuasive media producer being on the inside, maybe the movie is talking about a wholly different type of inside altogether. The inside of the insider may be the human mind. For there is no greater inside than the inner sanctum that is our minds. Now, in his take on what the human mind, the ultimate insider, is capable of, man appears to be saying that truth, in the end, matters. And if you give enough people the truth, it will matter more. But that seems a bit romantic for my tastes. Now, I'll admit, my cynicism is at an all-time high. I'm a fucking ultra-marathoner as far as my cynical chops go at this point, and I just don't buy it. I ask the question again, are we all that different than we were 25 years ago? How did we stamp out smoking but can't agree to wear masks? Maybe it was because we have been waiting for our reason to work its magic, to reach a collective mass, to have its Edward R. Murrow moment, for us to have our very own Jeffrey Wigan, a stranger that tells the truth and we fall in line behind the facts. But that's just what it is. Magic. Make-believe. Humans have never behaved collectively as a whole in that manner. Societies throughout history are just tumultuous cyclones of activity and energy that teeter between conquered and conquerors. Reason has not been progressively improving our cognitive abilities. Do you need any further proof in the last four years? Would we be able to wigand our way out of our current political death spiral? If human reason was special and could, with sufficient training, achieve a level of effective certainty when it came to a human's interaction with the world, then where is it? Where is all this perfect reason? Why, repeatedly and without fail, are humans always their own worst enemies, which can only mean that they are not using their reason correctly? I read this online the other day, and I think it sums up what I'm saying. Now, this is from a guy named Gary King. He's a statistics guy who I think teaches at Harvard for what it's worth. But he had this to say about human reasoning. Quote, A strong empirical pattern that probably even describes you. You think everyone is more gullible than you, but the person your own arguments are most likely to fool is yourself. Unquote. Now, if you want to pawn off this misuse of reason, to the uneducated, the dishonest, the worst parts of society, you would be short-sighted. For there is no shortage of highly intelligent, morally upstanding humans that have succumbed to the siren song that reason is all one needs to make the correct decision. The irony that in a human faculty touted as universal and praised for its mythical ability to get to the truth is indeed universal, only that 
in this case, the universality that is on display by human reason is that of it being universally used incorrectly by all of us, the ass head and the egghead alike. Take Oregon's own Linus Pauling as an example. Now, this is a man who had bona fides, a scientist and a humanitarian who is the only person to have ever won two non-shared Nobel Prizes, is one of only two people to win two Nobel Awards in different categories. Mary Curie is the other. Now, Pauling won his first Nobel Prize for chemistry in the mid-1950s, and his second prize, the Nobel Peace Prize, he won in 1962. In one influential poll, he was named one of the 20 greatest scientists of all time. In another, he ranked 16th as the most influential scientist in human history. The dude, as I said, was bona fide. And then his wife got cancer. Like any good scientist, Pauling tackled the problem and quickly ascertained through experiment that vitamin C could cure his wife's cancer. When he made the announcement to the world, there was much excitement. This was, after all, quite possibly the smartest man on the planet. The 20th century's version of Newton, America's Einstein. Immediately, throughout the country, programs and trials were launched to verify and perfect this literal cure for cancer. Then, Mrs. Pauling died. And all the attempts to verify the findings of this miraculous vitamin C failed. It turned out that azorbic acid, while an important nutrient the body craves and most certainly helpful in improving one's health, did not, in the end, cure cancer. This is where we would expect the smartest man on the planet to examine the evidence and use his impeccable reason to come to conclusions that the rest of the scientific and medical community had. But if you have lived through 2020, you probably already know the answer. Not only did Pauling not accept the evidence, he, and I apologize for using this much overused term, he doubled down. He doubled down on his belief and his panacea and eventually was ostracized from the scientific community he once bestrode like Colossus. He continued his research with a small band of ardent followers subsisting on the largesse of people desperate to stop the cancer in themselves and their loved ones. The great man was unable to deliver on any of his claims concerning his cure. He went to his grave an outcast, broke and disillusioned, but he never gave up the belief that he was right. Now, if Linus Pauling fails to use reason correctly, what hope is there for the rest of us. And that brings me back to the interesting part of 2020 for me. Human behavior is now on full display for all the world to see, thanks to the transparency granted us by what is commonly called the information age. Measurement tools like Facebook, Twitter, and other algorithm-based platforms have opened a Pandora's box, exposing the dark underbelly of the true nature of human behavior. And yes, I did call Facebook and its ilk measurement tools because they are. They measure something we had yet to be able to quantify accurately in society, engagement. This is the product that this technology is peddling. Now, it may sound like I'm piling on big tech and laying all of society's ills at the feet of social media, but I'm not. For me, the belief that the effects of social media on society is the fault of the algorithms and the technology is looking through the telescope from the wrong end. Flipping the thought around, you can place the blame for the abject horror show that is social media squarely on the shoulders of us, our minds, our thoughts, our truths. The social media shit show is a 100% human production. For social media did not change us. 
it exposed us. It exposed us as a collective group that has no desire for truth as an absolute. We only need a truth that jives with what we choose to believe in. Now, there are a lot of articles and think pieces out there attempting to explain this fracture in society. The absurdity of our collective situation is being treated as many things, but very few of the insights, in my opinion, go deep enough. At the lowest levels, we've evolved in this manner on purpose. The entire evolutionary process from the Big Bang to now has culminated in this version of human consciousness. This collective behavior is guided by the same principles as the rest of the laws of the universe. Human consciousness is, at its root, only concerned with burning as much energy as possible. Nothing burns energy like human conflict. Human conflict is caused by ignorance. Ignorance perpetuates because our minds do not crave truth or facts. It craves loyalty and social interaction with like-minded peers. We only need positive affirmation and acceptance of our individual beliefs. We do not, in any way, need truth. Before technology provided the platforms, this type of understanding was hard to see. There were elections, polls, letters to the editor, and protests. That All of those could be utilized to push an agenda. But the social aspect, the sense of community that can build behind a theory, such as a belief that the earth is flat, was not very easy to do prior to the internet. But now that we can measure this type of engagement, we are able to sustain communities that flourish in just such an environment. For the first time in our history, we can see unvarnished human cognition in all its faded, tattered glory. For all of our hand-wringing and incredulity concerning flat-earthers, anti-vaxxers, QAnoners, and maggots, it is important to understand that this is not something new or exclusive to the people currently espousing said beliefs. What we are seeing now on our Facebook walls, Twitter feeds, and Instagram posts is us. All of us. I mean, how else do you explain it? This infallible fallibility that all humans in all cultures, times, and places experience up to and most certainly including to this very day in supposedly the most advanced society the world has ever known. But though it may be cold comfort, we are not alone, historically speaking, that is. Time after time, the human species has gone through eras where everything feels out of whack and the ground seems to be shifting beneath us. I have been describing the false reality that we have lived concerning how our minds work. We have a twofold problem. We are incredibly gullible to our own reasoning and we desperately want to appear useful to our peer group. Now, logic holds that in order for these two forces to have evolved in us collectively, then there must have been some basic utility behind them. It is not difficult to see if you're looking for traits that would benefit a human being for the majority of its evolution, meaning small hunter-gatherer groups of typically 40 or less. In these environments, which humanity spent 95% of its existence in, it would be extremely beneficial to be as loyal as possible to your clan, regardless of the truths that are being purported by outsiders. Equally important is to be perceived as valuable. Where survival was a daily calculation, it was imperative that you were adding something to the group. Anything less, even a neutral body, was a net loss for the whole. Chicken littles were necessary, effective members that kept everyone on their toes. Also, it is a very effective way to ingratiate yourself to a new tribe, which, as we mentioned earlier, must have been a common enough occurrence that the ability to pass along useful information sort of evolved into 
that chicken little gossip syndrome. But what about now? Are such traits as abject loyalty at all costs and passing along possibly bad info that helps support your standing in the group nutritive or toxic to our current society? For most of us, we stand on one side of the divide or the other, most likely defined as a political divide, and look over to the other side and see nothing but extreme cognitive dissonance. No matter which side we are standing on, we see something in the other side that confuses and scares us. Namely, we see in the other side an inability to see basic fact for what it is. What was once the ironclad link to a common sense reality, and I use the term common sense literally, what we all see, hear, smell, taste, and touch together, that reality that comes from the sensory input is what I'm calling common sense. At this moment in time, in late 2020, a lot of us are feeling that this all-important link in the chain of our world is breaking. And why shouldn't we? A pandemic, a contested election, racial injustice, economic oligarchy, existential climate crisis, no matter where you turn, the issues are split between people who believe there's an issue and those that see no issue at all. No longer is our sense in any way common. That is a very disturbing feeling, and all of us are affected by it. As someone who has read some history, it is not rare for this type of situation to arise. Countless times, in both large and small examples, history has shown us examples of this untethering of a common sense of things. The very subject of this podcast series, Evariste Galois, lived during one of the bloodiest and most recent episodes of this in the cataclysmic French Revolution. Now, what makes this time, the year 2020, so interesting is up to this point, the erosion of a common sense has not led to widespread violence and death. In almost every instance you can trace back through human history, once a common sense of reality is lost, then the mass slaughter commences. And it is not just the French. More recently, you can look at Cambodia, Russia, China, Germany, United States. Now, some of you may wince at this inclusion, thinking that the U.S. is some sort of paladin nation that only does good. For those of you in that camp, I invite you to talk to someone who lives in Vietnam. If numbers are more your thing, just remember that over 3 million Vietnamese died during our time in their country. What patch of earth you are born on holds no bearing on societal morality. Just because you were born in Ohio doesn't make you special in any way. If you go further back in time, you have stuff like the Protestant Revolution, Spanish conquests and inquisitions, the Crusades, the Mongols, the Romans, Alexander the Great, and innumerable smaller, lesser-known examples of extreme violence erupting during times of changing common sense. Now, so far at this point, we are in uncharted water. If our society here in the U.S. doesn't break out in all-out violence, what would that mean? Now, I ask this question because the template for all like situation in history is that one side will gain the upper hand and through use of deadly force, break the will of the other side, eventually absorbing the remaining populace that is still breathing into their ranks. What will be the consequences of not having our differences decided by violence? Will there be a way to find a middle ground? I think you would be optimistic to think that this would be the case. While it is a fallacy to assume past performance has any bearing on future performance, it would also be foolish to ignore our species' incredible consistency when it comes to times like these. Take the fervor for Trump. You can sense the same feelings, say, a French citizen felt when them and their countrymen acquiesced to be ruled by Napoleon in order to give them some semblance of order to their chaotic world that had been enduring 
unbearable horror for almost a decade. Napoleon was able to deliver a temporary pause in the atrocities, at least at home in France, that is, of course, after he conquered the country and moved on to conquer other countries. And the words of our severely flawed 45th president, is the cure worse than the disease? But that is just what I'm sensing from the Trump side of this whole shift in common sense, a desire to turn over the reins to someone who can give one side a victory in the culture war, no matter what the means. As it was said about the Romans, to create a desert and call it peace. The question remains, just how much of a desert is the one side willing to create? One aspect of this battle of common sense that has been raging throughout human history is the fact that even with tremendous barbarity and untold loss of life, it also happened to be the main agent of progress in human society. When asking the question of whether or not we will resort to violence in our current tussle over false facts, it is important to factor in what a lack of violence means. There is no question that if we somehow avoid wide-scale violence in our current ideological impasse, that we will be venturing into almost uncharted territory as far as human behavior is concerned. And that is where math comes in. You were probably waiting for it to show up in this episode. Math, being what it is, a consistent line of common understanding that dates back some 7,000 years or so, makes it a perfect tour guide through the chaos and consistency of humanity's ability to murder for their ideas. What have we got so far that remotely has anything to do with math? Well, on the surface, not a hell of a lot. Most of what I've been talking about leading up to this point has been of a sociological or psychological or maybe cognitive bent. While all three of these are important sciences, math, in the context of the history of math, does not have a lot to offer by way of those disciplines. We have established that we, as our own type of conscious entity called human, loves to lie to ourselves. We love to make ourselves feel better. But is that the reason the history of humanity is so fucking destructive? Is it just a series of big bad men who have run roughshod over humanity? Is it universal greed and avarice that drives all this calamity? To answer these questions, most of the world turns to something supernatural, typically something religious. That is where most of our answers have come from, from a deity, a belief that runs almost as long and as consistently through human existence as does math. But what if we looked at it a bit differently? What if we took the yoke of explanation away from God and instead took a look at math as the reason humans periodically go on kill-crazy rampages that cost millions of innocent lives? I would like to make the argument that shifts in common sense, or more particularly, how the common sense is measured and who is the ultimate decider on things, like how long a meter is or how long a second is, are at least partly to blame for humanity's bloodlust. Think about it. If reality is a lie we all agree on, and the structure on which the lie is constructed on shifts or changes, then the lie has to change. When the lie needs to change, then people get chewed up in the process. You gotta have someone to blame. After all, there might be a monster around the corner, right? In the case of Galois' France, there were monsters around a lot of their corners. It was not only politics that was being revolutionized. The very way we measured inert matter was being challenged and updated. The term most often associated with this process was called standardization. When the standards begin to shift, then people lose their collective minds. They don't understand what is happening. They only understand that, that they do not understand. That is because I believe no one has dug deep enough yet. 
It is not human behavior that drives the change in standards. It is math itself. Mathematics requires it. The more precision that developed in the mechanical systems of mankind, for instance, in Galois' time, the mechanics of artillery and of war in general, new and exciting mathematics were being utilized in the realm of warfare, and in order to provide the best output, like always, math needed the best possible input. Napoleon knew as much concerning accurate cannon placement. He was tired of dealing with the mishmash of systems he was encountering during his conquests. He would write incredulously of how humanity had made it as far as it had, and still did not have an agreed-upon standard of how long a meter was. Now, a couple years before Galois was born, in typical Napoleon fashion, he had one created out of platinum, declared it the new standard for the meter, and had it locked in a vault under constant guard. Problem solved. But in reality, it wasn't. The tiny ripples created by a Frankish standard of measurement would eventually culminate in tsunamis called the World Wars. How we measure, and almost more importantly, who we allow to define the standards of measurement matter. When they change, people fight and die. It is equally important to remember that the standards of measurement only change when they have to, and that change is dictated by mathematics and mathematics alone. It is almost as if there is a cabin in the woods thing going on here. That's from the movie Cabin in the Woods. It's a horror comedy that is based on the premise of the gods of old, the titans or the angels and demons or something like that. They still exist. These type of gods were the ones that require a blood sacrifice. So in a compromise, the humans have offered a yearly sacrifice to these gods in return for keeping the world as it is and not just destroying it and eating all the people. Now in the movie, the compromise is composed of using horror movies, which are really just twisted reality shows that no one knows is real. Only the human corporation who is producing the reality show and the gods themselves are aware that this particular slasher movie is really a human sacrifice to satiate the gods' bloodlust. Anyway, in some ways, if you were to remove the old gods from this premise and insert math, you could make pretty much the same argument. For some reason, when math requires a change, an increase in complexity, it also requires human blood. Now, this may be a coincidence, but it's an interesting one nonetheless. I mean, just off the cuff. But one could take a look at the whole American involvement in Vietnam as a result of the use of statistical analysis and game theory. Both established beachheads in the intellectual and governing sectors of mid-20th century society. After being relegated to insurance actuary tables and fringe math, respectively. Now, the documentary by Errol Morris, The Fog of War, is a great example of one man, I mean, arguably a very influential man, the Secretary of Defense William McNamara, and his infatuation with this newly implemented style of math. Now, this infatuation led to extending a needless war for years and costing millions of lives. Or in the parlance of my abacus in the woods theory, if you will, the gods of statistical analysis and game theory required a sacrifice, and we gave it to them. Even after we left Vietnam, leaving it in a smoldering ruin, we learned nothing. Like the characters in the film within the film Cabin in the Woods, we, collectively, are never made aware that the real reason we are being executed by a family of hillbilly zombies. But only in our case, the zombies are us. The love affair with probabilities and percentages was too great for our society to resist. It is a world that we all live in now. 
And this shift of common sense from an independent to a collective is tearing this country and maybe even the entire world to pieces. I mean, take a crack at the biggies, like I just said, those world wars. Now, in my estimation, it's fair to take them all the way back to the French Revolution. But for the sake of this discussion, we'll just take it back 60 years or so before they started, back to 1870. That's when Germany became a country and fought a war with France. So this was before World War I, right? This was called the Franco-Prussian War. Now, it lasted barely a year, and Germany just kicked the shit out of France. Uh, Germany had a guy named von Bismarck who thoroughly outshone his French counterpart, Napoleon III. That's right. Almost 100 years after the start of the French Revolution and the country of France was still being ruled by an emperor. Now, when you look back at what arguments were being lobbed back and forth between the two countries, one of the consistent topics brought up was that old bugaboo, standardization. It seemed that the technologically advanced countries like Germany, France, UK, and the United States were all scrambling to be the owners of the standards. Now, at that point in 1870, the standard bearers were the French. Now, that did not sit well with longtime rivals, the British and the Germans. The fight for standardization of measurement from meters to minutes continued as long as the armed conflicts did. And only after the Second World War was the world ready to start actually tackling a true standardization. Only after a clear victor emerged after a series of wars that cost hundreds of millions of human lives. Now, incidentally, we just re-standardized the meter a few years ago. This time, they say, it's for good. Now, when it comes to time itself, there still is not a completely agreed upon standard. So there you have it. Now, the quest for increased consistency and standardization continues, as I just said, to this very day. So does the sacrifices to the gods of measurement. Now, was it always that way? When math arrived on the scene some 7,000 years ago, there were two things that the people of that time most certainly had in common with all other humans who have ever used math. Number one, they used math pragmatically to make sense of the material world, starting with the ability to measure. Number two, they used metaphysics to make sense of the immaterial world. Now, up until now in this series, we have seen three main cultures, Sumerian, Egyptian, and Greek. The first two were incredibly durable, monolithic cultures that lasted for thousands and thousands of years. Though violence, war, and empire were all involved in some way or another in each culture, it occurred relatively infrequently as opposed to the third culture we just mentioned, the Greek. Starting with our Hellenistic forebearers, the pace of the common sense war, the race to measure and in turn literally set the standard, began to increase and with it the amount of death and destruction. All three cultures used math extensively, but only one of the three considered mathematics in a metaphysical way. Remember those two things we just listed. Math was being done to figure out how much barley to give a family, and that family was praying to, sacrificing to, and generally living by the rules of a metaphysical belief system. But for the Sumerians and the Egyptians, for the most part, math was for the living, metaphysics was for the dying. Then along came the Greeks. Thanks in part to Pythagoras and Plato, they developed a cultural reliance on metaphysical mathematics that provided the bridge to answer the questions that mere observation couldn't answer. Math provided them a gateway to start answering the questions like, what happens when you die? While there was assuredly metaphysics in Sumeria and Egypt, it was a far different sort than the Greeks. 
For ancient Sumerians and Egyptians, there was an afterlife and souls, but no eternal truths other than life and death, well, and probably taxes. Everything they believed in was based on reverence for and preparation for death. It was inevitable and everlasting. The Greeks changed that. Life was temporary for sure, but the soul, the soul was not only everlasting, but it was the only true part of the human. For the ancient Greeks, practical matters matter, of course. It's just that the real truth behind practical matters matter more. Sargon, the first emperor of Sumeria, was participating in many regional conquests, but eventually seemed content to build the greatest cities in the world versus attempting to conquer the world. It is like Sargon had watched the baseball movie Field of Dreams. If you build it, they will come. And they did. Babylon became just the most prominent example of dozens of Mesopotamian metropolises as the world flocked to the prosperous Fertile Crescent. Similarly, the Egyptians decided to build it and let them come. Of course, they, like their Sumerian neighbors, had a reason for staying put, the fertile Nile Valley. So geography has to have played a part. Now, if you listen to my Socrates podcast series, especially the first couple, you get a good idea of what life was like in Greece, as their soon-to-be famous city-states like Athens, Sparta, and Argos were just getting started. There was no fertile crescent in Greece, no Nile Valley. Life was much more arduous for the Denzian of the Attic Peninsula than it was for the Babylonian or the Thebian. This simple fact was to be a contributing factor into what was about to happen. For what the Greeks will set in motion, in part because of their need for easier access to food and trade, and in part due to their mathematical leap from the practical to the metaphysical, was to have the first attempt by a man to conquer the world. Now, I want to make sure I'm being clear that this next step, just one step in our insatiable desire to measure. The change that is going on is going to require bloodshed. The change that math will require from us is when we start to measure the inner world of our minds. Plato, with his perfect forms, beginning with the mathematical, geometric shapes, and building into concepts and infallible versions of the imperfect material ones, like the perfect horse or the perfect curveball, was taking a logical step of applying the powerful tools of mathematics to the human mind. His journey inward convinced him that there was a true real inside of us. He used math to prove his theory of the good with a capital G, a category that is at once the progenitor of all the properties of the world, but itself has no properties, at least that our minds can comprehend. Now, it wasn't a big stretch to remove the second O and just keep most of the infrastructure that Plato built when Western religion started to codify and spread. Now, this newly invented measurement of the soul, the quantifying of the human spirit that was initiated by Plato and his philosophies was passed down directly to a man named Aristotle. They not only knew each other, but Aristotle was Plato's star pupil. Until he wasn't. But the influence of Platonic thought, though much of it disputed by Aristotle later in his life, was out of the barn. Aristotle believed in the soul. He believed in the perfection of metaphysical mathematics. He was a walking, talking example of what a human being can be if they devoted their entire life to understanding how the natural world works. It just didn't ensure that what was being understood by Aristotle was right. And if you want to understand better what I mean, 
take a few minutes to peruse Aristotle's very peculiar logic system. It is an amazing example of shooting the arrow and painting the target. For many in the ancient world, however, it was a bullseye, and Aristotle would pass on his theories of the absolute truth that lives inside our own heads. A world where truth resides inside one's own head can become a dangerous thing if the head in question is that of a 21-year-old alcoholic with the world's largest ego and its greatest army. In the hands of a mind like that, the belief that your mind holds the truth, a truth buttressed not only by extreme privilege, but by the education as this mind was taught by a man considered to be one of the greatest minds in human history. The teacher was Aristotle, and the mind inside the head was that of Alexander the Great. Technically, Alexander was not from Greece, and in my opinion, wasn't that great. He was from the, the immediate neighbor to the north, a place called Macedonia, what is now modern-day the Balkans, Bulgaria, Serbia, Albania, Kosovo. His dad was a great military man named Philip II, who by the time Alexander was born, had established the greatest military in the known world and had subjugated many of the Greek city-states already. Now, Philip spared no expense on his son and hired none other than the philosopher Aristotle, considered, again, to be, by many, to be the greatest natural philosopher who has ever lived and certainly one of the greatest logicians ever. This is where Alexander gets connected to the practical metaphysics of Greece proper. Aristotle was a student of Plato, but as the pupil began to forge his own road, he began to decidedly disagree with Plato on a number of fronts. Now, one of the reasons for Aristotle being available to tutor young Alexander was due to the philosopher self-exiling after getting into a tiff with some important platonic thinkers. Timing, they say, is everything. Aristotle bought a decidedly scientific outlook to his philosophies and in many ways was more of a scientist, catalogist, logician, and mathematician than he was a philosopher. And for that reason alone, he would have a hard time adhering to his teacher, Plato's beliefs. However, he didn't disagree with the importance of math or the extreme bias Greek thought had for geometry and the strange practical ideological belief system that comes when unanswerable questions transcend the real world, venture into the realm of the metaphysical. While the world of the metaphysical was always there in part for the average Greek in the form of their gods and goddesses, this new spin on the unseen world of the human mind was not a mere collection of stories. It was for its time, scientific fact that changed the world. Just as much as we feel the floor moving under us now, so to speak, culturally, due in part to the technology like social media and the algorithms that we drive with our clicks and our likes, so too did the world of Alexander quake in the wake of Hellenistic common sense driven by a new, logical, indeed factual metaphysical world that not only was groundbreaking in its scope, but also in its ability to grant humans the belief that they could, and more importantly, should, conquer the world for the sake of spreading this new, all-important way of thinking. New way of perceiving the world. A new common sense of reality. When Alexander chose to conquer the world, he did so because the math let him know he could. Not in the literal sense, of course. That would be some fancy fortune-telling type of math. No, the math let him know he could, because it gave him the belief that he, and more importantly, the way he thought, was more important than human life. The gods always require a sacrifice. And off he went, 
subjugating and have no doubt massacring thousands of people along the way, spreading the Hellenistic culture into a world that now had to contend with this new way of understanding the world, geometrically and not arithmetically. Like on Star Trek, we are the Borg, you will be assimilated. Then he stopped in Egypt and decided to rename the city of Rakotis, Alexandria. Then he left for Babylon and he never returned alive. His dead body was entombed in Alexandria after it was whisked away in the middle of the night by one of his generals, a man named Ptolemy, who would take the dead body of Alexander back to Alexandria and entomb it, symbolizing now that the city was where the great man's power resided. You might recognize that name, Ptolemy. After being general for Alexander, Ptolemy promoted himself to Pharaoh and created the last great Egyptian pharaonic family that ended when Cleopatra was bitten by that asp about 300 years later. 300 years after Ptolemy absconded with Alexander's body and embodied the city of Alexandria with the spirit of the greatest conqueror that the world had ever known. Thus was created the greatest city ever built for the purpose of learning. Alexandria was a living, breathing embodiment of the belief that Alexander was spreading the true nature of the cosmos, the freedom and confidence one feels when they have the right answer. I have to say that it is extremely suspect to attribute too much to the belief that the intention of Alexander was to spread the Hellenistic truth to the world. He was a drunk and a bully. He drank himself to death, Hank Williams style, before the age of 35. His quest was glory and riches, no more, no less. And there's no better testament to this than to what the city of Alexandria was to become in the coming centuries. Wait, the fact that Alexandria would become the center of intellectual universe for almost 700 years was not because Alexander founded it? Well, sure, if, in, if the act of giving a place your name is on par with creating the most intellectually tolerant society on earth responsible for the very modern world we call home, then sure, Alexander the Drunk did it with a wine goblet in the study. But in reality, he only spent days in the city, and he never returned alive. He literally had nothing to do with one brick, one book, or one lighthouse in the city that bears his name and holds his bones. Now, you may not know much about Alexandria. I sure didn't before I started this episode. There's so much to learn about this miraculous city. It's mythical, almost, like Atlantis. It seems to have existed only in stories and tall tales. I mean, did you know that Alexandria had vending machines that took coins and could dispense just about anything you wanted? One of the more popular uses of the vending machine was in religious temples. That's where you could find yourself plunking your coins into a holy water dispenser, getting a little squirt of the blessed liquid as you hear your little coin rattle away inside this miraculous little device. Now you have to wonder, if the average person partaking of this machine knew that it was a machine and didn't just consider it magic. Now, this technology was something called pneumatics, and it was perfected by a guy named Hero, who was a master of the gases. He used his amazing insight into the properties of gases and their abilities to create not just vending machines, but whole animatronic persons, eye-popping special effects for the theater and giant doors that opened on command. When I'm learning about something like this, I start to rethink my assumptions as to how fictionalized tales like Alibaba or Jason and the Argonauts really are. I mean, it was technically possible for someone in the ancient world to have a boat that was rowed by a bronze minotaur. No shit. 
But crazy farting robots aside, that was not the only thing that made Alexandria awesome. It was also a culture that was built on the concept of intellectual prowess. Athens, a city that had also been conquered by Alexander the Great on his way to founding Alexandria, was, in the preceding centuries, the center of the Western intellectual world. But save for a short time, for about 30 years or so, was really just a city like any other city. On the other hand, Alexandria was the intellectual center of arguably the entire world for almost 700 years. And that whole time, they walked the intellectual walk. So much so that they had a policy that any and all visitors to the city would have their books confiscated. They would be brought to the main library to be examined and then determined if they needed to be kept and copied or given back. If they had to be copied, you got the copy. They kept the original. The city of Alexandria did this for centuries. In turn, they compiled the largest collection of knowledge the world has ever known and would know until the 20th century. The city of Alexandria was and is the longest-lasting city of its kind in human history. It is probably the only city of its kind in human history, an entire city devoted to the cause of knowledge. All knowledge was welcome. It was one of the only times in extended human history, almost seven full centuries, that all beliefs were accepted and debated. Ideas flourished at a rate that seems almost impossible, even by today's standards. And math was a dominant subject in the city. Almost from the start, math was intertwined with the city. It was used to design it, down to the last brick. And many of the reasons for the longevity of the city's intellectual conquest can be traced to this solid foundation. It was truly one of a kind. Its governance was unlike anything else in the Egyptian world. It was an outlier in a 3,000-year-old culture built on not having outliers. Outside of Egypt, people weren't as lucky. In the wake of Alexander's rampaging, most of them were left to be ruled by tyrants and despots whose only quest was for power and money. And who is to say that the leaders of Alexandria, men who reported directly to the pharaoh, were also motivated by the same greed and lust for power? If so, they just chose a very different way to represent it. By trying to be the smartest, not the wealthiest. And just a brief listing of some of the more famous Alexandrians will display the weird bias that history has had for that remarkable city. Almost all the names I'm about to list are most often referred to as Greek, when in fact they were African by birth, Alexandrian by citizenship. Euclid, Archimedes, Eratosthenes, Plutonius, Galen, Callimachus, Philo, Apollonius, Hypatia, and the man known as the father of algebra, a man named Diophantus. Just in this short list, we see a bunch of religions, pagan, Christian, Jewish, a bunch of professions, mathematics, geography, religion, philosophy, fiction, medicine, cataloging, go Kalamakis, in one city. Not Athens, not Rome, but Alexandria, the first and only great city ever established for the support of the intellectual gifts of the human being. Now, when you read about a place like Alexandria, you get a ton of no-shit moments. Many examples exist of myths that we have been told about the limitations of ancient peoples and their understanding of how the universe works, or how the human body functions, or how the subatomic particles that make up our world work. For instance, Alexandrians knew how blood circulated through the body. They knew that the earth was round and orbited the sun. They discussed and developed a theory of atoms and how subatomic particles would behave. But above all things, Mathematics was the calling card of the intellectuals of Alexandria. 
All the big names in ancient math are at least affiliated with having studied there or outright lived in this oasis of the mind at the mouth of the Nile. Names like Euclid, Archimedes, Eratosthenes would perform acts of stunning originality and power with their respective mathematical theories and proofs, almost all of them exclusively geometric. Which makes sense. The Greek was the reason for the very city they lived in. Hellenistic culture was the prominent culture and the language of their time. The Hebrew Bible, or Old Testament, was first translated into ancient Greek so as to be more accessible. It stands to reason that their math would also be Greek to be accessible. The master geometers were playing their craft in Alexandria with startling results. They had measured the circumference of the earth, the distance between us and the moon, and even the sun. Mysteries were beginning to be answered. Their questions, once the realm of the mystic and the metaphysical, were beginning to be replaced with a new truth, one discerned through mathematics that was material in nature. And like the film, The Insider, the people of Alexandria felt that they had an extra gear to their reason, an ability to see truth for what it was, reality, and behave accordingly. They felt that if you just showed someone the facts, then voila, reason kicks in and the truth is updated or augmented. But more importantly, it was agreed on as part of the common sense of how the world worked. But like a good film noir, when you know the ending at the beginning of the story, the mathematicians in Alexandria were wrong. It was never about absolute truth. It was and always will be about whose version of the truth wins out and earns the coveted title of common sense. In some ways, the world of Alexandria was not much different than the one we are currently finding ourselves in. What had once been a stable, supportive, collective society of amnesty and relative good began to degenerate into tribal warfare. The deeper the deep thinkers of Alexandria delved into their version of the theory of everything, the more they helped create the conditions for their own demise. I like to use the movie The Dark Knight as an example of what I'm talking about. In that film, Batman is talking to his butler, Alfred. In the scene, Alfred is explaining to Batman that he has left the organized criminals of Gotham no other choice but to turn to a man like the Joker to save them. That idea that you can corner someone so much that they throw out sanity and hitch their wagon to a madman is a recurring one in this episode. The French did it with Napoleon. Americans have done something similar in falling in line behind Trump. When you give someone no other choice, they will abandon any sense of common sense and resort to the basest of human behaviors. And back in the late 3rd and 4th century AD in Alexandria, a group of people sharing similar beliefs had been fighting their way out of just such a corner. The Christians of the Roman era, before taking power, had been the victims of horrible persecution themselves. Torture, rape, literally being thrown to the lions, that is what the early Christians faced and must have pushed them into a similar corner as the French, the Gotham Mafia, and at least half our country. This rise from persecution to rule took hundreds of years. All that time, Alexandria chugged right along and continued to apply its intellect to explaining our world. Then the Christians took power and began to pass laws making it illegal to be Alexandrian. Well, not literally, but they did outlaw other religions, religious practices, and a ton of what they termed pagan learning. Eventually, this will culminate 
in the burning of the great library and the murder of philosopher Hypatia by a mob, purported to be a Christian mob. But I got to take a minute to point out that what was once a stone-cold fact has become a bit of an interstellar moment for me. Like that part in the movie Interstellar when the dad played by Matthew McConaughey is at the parent-teacher conference and is told by the teacher that the moon landing never happened. In that same vein, when you search when the Christians burned Alexandria, you get a shit ton of websites calling this indisputable fact into question. That's a little crazy for me. I mean, I was on the Ohio State website and they spent a lot of time trying to make the whole burning of the greatest trove of pre-Christian thought that had ever existed as either an unfortunate mishap during a temple's conversion to a church or an unfortunate victim of a tumultuous time when many cultures and beliefs were literally fighting in the streets. Um, okay. But something that is left out is that at the time of the burning of the library, the city of Alexandria, which happened in 391 AD, that city had, by that time, literally outlawed every other religion save for Christianity. Not only were they in charge, the Christians, they were actively attempting to destroy the very spirit, an almost 700-year-old spirit, mind you, of the city itself. Now, it's even crazier, as the book I've been using a lot in my research, Mario Livio's The Equation That Couldn't Be Solved, completely glosses over the destruction of 391 and blames the loss of the library on Muslims 200 or so years later. Whoop, 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 dick alert, dick alert. I would like to file this latest attempt to act on the future by changing the past, namely the massaging and apologizing of the poor behavior of Christians of 391 AD. They did a bad thing. They should be remembered for doing it. Bottom line. I don't care what reasons can be created to justify what happened. In 391 AD, almost all of the writings contained in the Alexandrian library were lost. That is all that matters. The Christians were in charge and created an atmosphere ripe for destruction, and they got what they wanted. It is interesting to consider the motives of the people working to interstellar the devastation of 391 AD. Why? It's not like it is propaganda that has been propagated by an overarching leadership that is against the Christians. It was a fact that remained in the world through 1,500 years of Christian rule. If it was true, then why did super-Christian Edward Gibbon, in his mammoth decline and fall of the Roman Empire, state clearly that in 1859 he believed that the Christians burned down the library? Now, unless new info is put forth other than home improvements or it wasn't a bad neighborhood, it seems to me that we're trying to change the past to affect the future. And specifically to the author and mathematician Mario Livio, Really? Anyway, this concludes this alert from the Diachronic Time Control Network. We now take you back to your regularly scheduled episode. By the mid-4th century AD, open persecution of non-Christians was in full effect under the Holy Roman Emperor Constantius II. A lot of this burden fell upon the intelligentsia of the day. Learning, commenting on the natural world, participating in discussion and experiment, could be seen as blasphemous and lead to a death sentence. The Christians were going full joker on the rest of the world. It was in this climate, just 40 or so years later, that the great library at Alexandria was decimated. History tells us this was done by a mob whose stated goal was to destroy the last vestiges of pagan belief in the city. Just a few decades earlier, there was a man called the father of algebra who lived and taught in Alexandria. 
he is very much responsible for carrying on, or in most cases, straight up creating the modern world of math. His name was Diophantus, and there is good reason to not only call him the father of algebra, but to also believe that Galois was acutely aware of his contributions to the math that so entranced him. We don't know a ton about the man Diophantus. We think he lived sometime in the last century of the city's golden age, around the 200s. Maybe 250 to 280 was when he was writing. He wrote about a dozen books on math and numbers, of which only a fraction survive. He is credited with a number of firsts, like the first mathematician, to see fractions as numbers in themselves. He also uses the unknown, or X, or algebraic symbolism for the first time. The variable. And in fact, it would also be the last time for almost 1,200 years in the West. One of the more enduring aspects of Diophantus' life is the algebraic epitaph that reportedly was carved on his tombstone. It read, Here lies Diophantus, the wonder behold. Through art algebraic, the stone tells how old. God gave him his boyhood, one-sixth of his life, one-twelfth more, as youth while whiskers grew rife. And then yet one-seventh ere marriage begun, in five years there came a bouncing new son. Alas, the dear child of master and sage, after attaining half the measure of his father's life, chill fate took him. After consoling his fate by the science of numbers for four years, he ended his life. Now, if you write it out and do the math, you will find that Diophantus lived to the ripe old age of 84. Diophantus is also responsible for a version of number theory analysis named after him called Diophantine analysis. This area of math is concerned with solving equations that have indeterminate solutions, meaning more than one. Mathematicians still use his methods to this day. In fact, one of Diophantus's indeterminate equations became one of the most mysterious and famous math equations of all time. The famous Fermat's last theorem is actually a solution proposed by the French mathematician Pierre de Fermat in 1637, when he was reading one of Diophantus' books. For those who are interested, the issue at hand for Fermat was this. No three numbers, specifically positive integers, A, B, and C, satisfy the equation A to the nth power plus B to the nth power equals C to the nth power for any integer or number value of N greater than 2. So in the margins of the book that Fermat was reading, he wrote this. I have a truly marvelous demonstration of this proposition, which this margin is too narrow to contain. Then he died. So the mystery started, and the proof of his theorem took 358 years of the world's best mathematicians to finally solve. That was in 1995. And they were only able to prove that there is no solution to the equation, as opposed to actually arriving at a solution. Like all names that I listed of the famous minds of Alexandria, Diophantus's contributions to math extend all the way into our modern world. One instance is this statement from Diophantus that is the first of its kind that we know of. Now, you might recognize it from middle school math. Diophantus is fond of saying, deficiency multiplied by deficiency yields availability. Deficiency multiplied by availability yields deficiency. 
Now, I got that spicy little nugget of info from this great paper in the Journal of Humanistic Mathematics by a guy named Cyrus Heddle, entitled The Symbolic and Mathematical Influence of Diophantus' Arithmetica. Now, Arithmetica, in this instance, is the title of those dozens or so books that Diophantus wrote on the subject. Now, that quote I just used is more recognizably stated in the modern vernacular as two negative numbers multiplied will result in a positive number, and a negative number multiplied by a positive number will result in a negative number. Now, this is an example of a key point concerning Diophantus and his place in history. He was not merely solving one equation or problem, nor was he only instructing readers how to solve specific problems. Unlike most of his contemporaries and past purveyors of mathematical wisdom, Diophantus was working on general answers to certain problems and not specific mathematical proofs. According to the paper by Heddle, this is why Diophantus' method was so different. Heddle states that, quote, Diophantus's solutions are more truly algorithms than proofs. The statement of problems are written with the expectation that readers will apply his results to solve concrete, specific problems rather than engage in more theoretic pursuits, unquote. Now, this was in direct conflict with the prevailing belief, I mean, backed up by law in the city of Alexandria, that the material the practical, was to be stripped from knowledge and replaced by the theoretical, the metaphysical truth of religion. Now, for me, I'm attracted to the similarities between how Diophantus saw the world and how my main man Socrates did. I mean, if you cannot apply your idea to the material world, it's not of any real use. Now, unfortunately for Diophantus, his insight happened to occur during a time of extreme intolerance and violence. Now, if you've been following along with this episode, this should come as no real surprise to you when two competing forces are fighting for the title of who gets to set the standard, people die. So that's how this jives with my abacus in the woods theory. How could a place like Alexandria, a place where almost unfettered intellectual feats were encouraged, regardless of their religious, political, or any other affiliation, exist without there also being an equally large and impressive loss of human life? With that, I say, O oh, ye of little faith, nature does indeed find a way to extract its pound of flesh, for the world outside the utopian world of Alexandrian math was dissolving into a level of chaos that would blow the circuit breaker on all of Western civilization. Starting with the conquest of Alexander, the world had been changing at a rate never before seen in human existence. Under the banner of Enlightenment, or Hellenistic Enlightenment, Alexander's armies laid waste to the previous standards, literally the way the world was quantified and understood, the way it was measured. Now, this standard that Alexander implemented would stick around for a while, bringing with it a sustained time of relative peace. But not a peaceful sort of peace. Remember that desert I talked about earlier? The one about the Romans creating a desert and calling it peace? That's the kind of peace I'm talking about. Soon after Alexander's death, the power in the known world began to consolidate in the city of Rome, who would, in its own time, get around to dealing with Alexandria. The Roman world was beginning to unravel at this point, in many ways resembling our own current situation, for Rome had plunged itself into a destructive civil war that would cost Rome its own 400-year-old republic. Now, if you want to prep yourself for what may come next for the good old U.S. of A., you should look into the final days of the Roman Republic. I guarantee you, you will find it educational. When the Romans got around to annexing Alexandria, 
The Egyptian city had been around for over three centuries, and its reputation as a center of learning and wisdom was firmly in place. That's when Julius Caesar, after vanquishing his last remaining worthy foe, fellow Roman Pompey Magnus, in the Civil War, took up residence in Alexandria. This is around 47 BC. There he executed a coup that placed the last of Ptolemy's line on the throne of Egypt in the form of Cleopatra. It is during this conflict that the first cracks in the stability of Alexandria began to show. The forces commanded by Caesar during the battle to unseat the current monarch and replace him with his sister, Cleopatra, in that effort, they burned some of the amazing library down. No one is certain how much damage was done, but the library remained standing and the center of the intellectual world, albeit under Roman rule, remained in Alexandria for centuries to come. Luckily for the smart people of Alexandria, the Romans wanted to keep it the way it was, as a jewel in the crown of Roman cities. Now, in the context of a narrative, this one in particular, it is thought-provoking to consider the ability of the abacus in the woods theory to reflect a certain amount of relativity. In this instance, in the form of the size of the destruction being commensurate to the size of the conflict. In the case of Caesar and his effect on the library at Alexandria, you can see that since there was no intent to abolish the spirit of the city and no major change to the common sense of reality, other than an outsider like Caesar dictating who the Egyptians should have as their leader. Therefore, the amount of change required was minor. So was the damage. This connection between the level of acceptance to others' ideas and beliefs and the change of standards would be again reflected in the next conflagration that would occur in Alexandria. So about 400 years after Caesar, after four centuries of Roman rule, Alexandria, the city that had been created for one purpose and had served that purpose dutifully for almost seven centuries, was forever maimed when a Christian mob under the watchful eye of Christian leaders who had just recently passed legislation outlawing all other religions, crushing with one fell swoop hundreds of years of tolerance, burned much of the library that had given purpose to the great city of Alexandria to the ground. The Christians, in their attempt to escape the desert of Roman peace, went right on and created a desert of their own. Once Alexandria fell, so did the curtain on the Western intellectual world. Why? Was it just ideological? Had time passed for the ancient pagan religions of the past? Was Christianity's actions in Alexandria to be expected? It does seem like the story goes something like that. A new truth, a new way to have common sense of things had arose and in turn had stomped out all other competition. This was all based on metaphysical belief, which God you prayed to. But what if it was more than that? Now, our friend Diophantus was not just a clever guy who wrote a dozen or so books on arithmetic. He was, in fact, much more than that. Indeed, what Diophantus was able to accomplish was to take the two dominant mathematical theories of the day, the arithmetic, proto-algebraic math of Sumeria and Egypt, and the geometric perfection of ancient Greece, and begin to lay the foundation of modern math in the form of algebra. He did this in much the same way that our man Galois will do 1,500 years later. They will both start to see mathematics in a different way not just a practical method for doling out grain and not some pie-in-the-sky perfection that we have to prostrate ourselves to. Instead, both men saw in math the strange and powerful ability for math to work on itself. For the numbers to be replaced by anything and everything and then swap back to numbers and back again 
the looping nature of mathematics, the patterns and solutions that await inside, around, and in most cases, through the very numbers themselves, is where a certain type of truth, a very basic and strong version of that elusive beast that can be a very suitable basis for a common sense of reality. Now, this melding of worlds, cultures, and common sense is a dramatic one, especially in relief to the alternative being pitched at the time, religion. As in all such confluences of influence, the outcome of the process was a violent, destructive one. But in many ways, the world that was wrought by Diophantus, reaching for greater and greater heights of human understanding, can best be understood by what came after it. It is a great representation of the law of physics that states each action has an equal and opposite reaction. What was to come after the fall of Alexandria was, in comparison to the last great shift in common sense, that of Alexander mowing down human life, so his so-called quest to Hellenize the world, a move that was just copied by the Romans, by the way. I mean, they really only had to follow Alexander and really being honest to follow Alexander's father, Philip's game plan, and to dominate the Mediterranean world. The Romans just didn't drink as much wine as Philip did, and they had a better handle on administration. So even counting the immense loss of life that occurred starting in and around 300 BC with Alexander and culminating throughout the Roman Empire, it is dwarfed by what occurred after the fall of Alexandria and soon after the fall of the entire Roman world. And I'm here to say that in no small part did math have a hand in this. According to my abacus in the woods theory, it stands to reason that it was in fact math in the cultural center of the world with a Diophantine equation that did it. Now, we, we may try to put our own spin on it, try and be like Michael Mann and see the absolute truth in the search for the truth, never seeing the obvious irony of searching for something absolute means that once you find it, you never have to look for it again. It is absolute. So if you think that there is some insider that is going to save us from the predicament we find ourselves in today, some stranger that is going to be able to tell the truth and we will rise up and stomp out the monster that is approaching our gates, I wouldn't bet on it. In fact, you can be sure that there were plenty of open-minded, progressive Alexandrians that felt the same way you do now. How did that work out for them?